This is the Interledger Community Call, 2nd of September. Thanks for joining. Um, on the agenda today, we're going to talk a little bit about um, direct ILP access and specifically how third parties can integrate into wallets um, to be able to offer services to users. Um, I think two use cases there are third party payment initiation or other services, but also specifically where the third party is the payee um, and wants to, for example, receive payment like a merchant. Um, how that would work, um, I know uh, in discussions before Kincaid had um, some thoughts about the need to have some standardization there. We talked a little bit about how it works today with client registration for OAuth um, and some background on exactly how we're thinking about this in the open payments world. Um, so that's the one topic. Um, and once we've covered that, we can find out if anybody's got any other business they want to cover. Okay, um, so apologies for the slightly nasal voice, got a bit of a cold. Um, but the, so the topic that I proposed today was um, the third party integration. Uh, so for a bit of context, um, we've been talking the last little while about direct ILP access. And basically the idea there is that if you have an account with a wallet, um, they give you an API to access that, that account, but that API is actually direct interledger access. So you can actually send ILP packets to the wallet and those get forwarded on and you will receive ILP packets from the wallet, which you can fulfill. Um, and the effect of that is that you're actually spending money out of your account whenever you send packets that are successfully fulfilled and you're receiving money into your account whenever packets are sent to you that you fulfill. Um, and there's a lot of really um, interesting stuff you can do with that API uh, and that interface. Um, but most, probably most interesting is the stuff you could build for other people if you have access to their accounts. So um, you can imagine if I gave a third party access to my account with some sort of uh, limit on what they're able to spend, um, you know, that might be, for example, how they debit my account every month for a subscription or um, they might be uh, a digital wallet themselves and offer me you know, third-party payment initiation services. So that's kind of how the Apple Pay and Google Pays of the world work is you load a credit card, so they effectively have access to your account. Um, and when you pay for stuff, they you know, charge your card on your behalf. Um, in our initial discussions with wallets around direct ILP access, we haven't really got into detail on the third party initiation use case and, and what would be required. Um, but in thinking about open payments and sort of this sort of third party delegated access generally, the role players tend to be um, a client. So the third party is generally called a client. You'll have an auth server and a resource server um, in, in OAuth world, but we can probably think of the resource server and resource owner as the wallet and the user, um, and the wallet also doing the auth services. Um, and, and so in, a, in an OAuth sense, what we're thinking about is client registration. So we're talking about the third party registering with the wallet as somebody they trust to be able to access these APIs on behalf of a resource owner or a user. And generally they'll take, um, if you think about how you would normally use all services on a lot of other systems today, 
like login with Google, you'll have to pre-register as a client. Um, and that makes sense in some use cases, but in others, for example, if I want to shop online at a store and I want to check out and that store wants to be able to um, connect to my wallet directly and push money to itself using um, direct ILP, then that store doesn't want to have to pre-register with every possible wallet that'll come along. You need a sort of standardized way that that would work. Um, our proposal currently is to use mandates for that in, in OAuth. So what would happen is um, the store would, or the third party would know the payment pointer of the account that they're going to access. So that's a URL and they would create a mandate. So they post to the mandates endpoint for that account and they would describe exactly what kind of access they want. So they would describe, you know, how much money, how often um, they want to have access to that amount. And then um, that the, the URL that's created that represents that mandate is the resource they request access to through OAuth. Um, it doesn't really solve the client registration problem itself though. So we haven't really thought about that in the open payments um, specs. And client registration in OAuth, um, OpenID has a concept of you know, dynamic client registration. Uh, and there's also a concept of federated clients, um, but not really super well defined. One of the like one of the challenges, as I said, with merchants registering at every um, at every wallet is that well specifically that need that is the challenge is, is trying to scale that. And so how they've solved for that, for example, in open banking, is they'll have like a registry. So there's a central payment initiation service provider registry where um, people who want to offer that service or want to do that um, go and register and they get vetted by a kind of authority. And when you want to access an account through APIs at an account servicing institution, um, you're using credentials that were given to you by that registry, the registering authority. So that's how the account servicing institution, or in our case, a wallet, trusts um, that you're you're not a you know malicious. Um, so that's kind of the state of play. Um, I don't know, Kincaid. I know there's something, an issue close to your heart, or if others on the call have thought a bit about how to solve for this. Any ideas on how we might go about um, solving for this one? Yeah, I guess just kind of my thoughts on it were that for application developers or merchants, in order to make the direct access interoperable between different providers, it's important that there's kind of standardization of the authorization flow. Um, so that could mean, you know, whatever, um, you know, access token is kind of returned uh, in the redirect. Um, like that means the same thing for different providers. There's like a, some kind of schema to that or any other additional information we're returning. Um, and so I think that's important because you don't want like applications to have to tailor um, their integration to different providers if it works slightly differently depending upon uh, the provider. 
Yeah. Um, and when you thinking about that, are you thinking specifically just about the integration effort? Um, like would, would I, would I as a client still have to register with each of them, except that the process would be the same. So the APIs would be standardized or were you still thinking of like a dynamic registration capability? I mean, I think right now I'm probably more interests. I think I'm probably more amenable to the dynamic registration model. I think if it, if there were entities on the network that kind of wanted um, more rigorous uh, vetting of applications uh, or something like that, then maybe, you know, it'd be more useful to talk about, you know, a registry or kind of what that would look like. But I guess my concern would be like, I don't, I don't want to like, you know, put a ton of effort into like designing a whole registry system when that just adds a lot of complexity and if, if existing participants on the network are still able to take on that risk, uh, the risk of uh, dynamically registered applications anyways. Okay. Yeah. Uh... Yeah, that's interesting. Like the the dynamic client registration is definitely on kind of in scope with open banking, but it seems to always be through some sort of directory or central authority. Um, the one bit of like we've dabbled a bit in the Coil Cape Town office with um, trying to find a sort of more distributed way of doing that. The best we could find was a thing called Indie Auth, but that doesn't really do um, registration in as much as well, it's, it's dynamic client registration, but it, it only solves the issue of like identity of the client by basically scraping their website and making sure that stuff on their website matches like the URLs that they use um, and that they are who they purport to be. Um, but there's no real vetting process or anything like that. Um, so I guess there's a couple of problems we're solving here. One is the integration burden and the other is like, um, I guess the trustworthiness uh, of that third party. Um, I think wallets are reluctant to open up APIs to third parties that they know nothing about, like just allow them to dynamically access those. So we need to have some way of, um, I don't know, I, I, securing is not the right word, but like doing that in a way that ensures the clients are some trusted in some way. Yeah, whether it's a web trust type thing, some sort of distributed thing, I'm not really sure. Um, it's a pretty difficult problem to solve actually. In your discussions with wallets, can you, could you speak more to the specific concerns around having un, uh, unvetted applications? Yeah, so, so I'm, um, I'm definitely uh, speculating a little bit based on what I've seen. So a good example would be Uphold. So Uphold as a wallet already have APIs. They're pretty comprehensive APIs. They don't support direct LP yet, um, but they have transactional APIs that allow you to actually execute transaction. They have a whole ecosystem of third party apps that you can build um, to use those APIs. And as far as I can tell, to get access to those APIs, um, you have to go through a registration process with them. 
Um, and I can't speak then for any other digital wallets, but I know um, I've been involved in a bank program where they're experiment, experimenting with open APIs and same thing. They're, their biggest concern about third party access is vetting the clients um, because they, they're basically handing over the keys to their users' accounts to some entity. They're basically allowed. So I guess the flip side of it is if you feel confident as a wallet, in the protections you place over the APIs, maybe it's less of a problem. Like if you have a way to give, if, you, if you're confident that your users are limiting that access somehow. So like, you know, you only allow a certain amount of um, volume to be uh, processed through the APIs without vetting the clients or something. So maybe kind of the equivalent of how you do tiered KYC, I don't know, um, could also work. As part of the challenges, you know, as with a lot of the open payment stuff, we don't really know until wallets start kicking the tires of this where the issues are going to be. Um, but it feels a little bit like we have to give some thought to it now because it's sort of an ecosystem building thing. It, it's not going to just emerge on its own. Um, it's going to require a bit of kind of concerted effort. Yeah, it'd be worth noting that Uphold's APIs allow unrestricted account access. Yep, so yep. No and that's and that's exactly yeah. So that's the thing, right? So maybe, as I say, maybe that's the balance. It's like because you're because their APIs are unrestricted, that's why they want to vet clients that much more carefully. Whereas if you did have ways to protect the APIs a bit more, restrict them, you would be more lenient on which clients you gave access to those APIs. It feels like the mandate is a reasonable way to do that. Um, I can't think of other use cases, like how you might want to restrict differently. A mandate's really just an amount. Um, I mean, do you think you would want to be able to restrict, like if a third party had access to your account, would you want to restrict who they can send money to? Um, I'm wondering how we would even enforce that in an ILP world. I mean, one of the, so one of the main use cases, I guess, for third party access is mandates and specifically, um, you know, things like recurring, effectively offering the equivalent of pool payments. So if I want to run a service um, or, or I want to give somebody access to my money, but I want to restrict how much they can take and, um, but then not have to be online to authorize every payment, then you could do that with direct RP and, uh, and a mandate. Um, I'm trying to recall, I know um, Brandon or Sabina, we've, we've been down this road a few times. So what the specific use case was for Codius um, to, to do this, uh, did, we, did you solve that a different way in the end? Um, we were interested in pull payments to have a, like a perpetually running hosted program for Codius. Um, and not have to have someone top up the balance for that with a bunch of push payments. So you could right. just uh, get yourself set up for, uh, for however frequent pool payments so that that could run forever. Um, for now we're doing, uh, 
like like serverless and just charging per request. So I guess that's how we we've sidestepped that for now. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. <laughs> so it's still potentially a use case there. It's just that um, it's just that you've sort of switched the architecture a little bit to not be as not really need them. Right. Okay. Cool. So that's all I had on that topic. Um, I don't know if anybody else has anything else they want to cover. Um, things are, are all a little bit quiet at the moment as we wait for some of the wallets to come back to us on, um, on direct RP access. If there's nothing else, I can give you some kind of high-level feedback that we've had from one of the wallets, um, if that's of interest. Cool. Um, well, let me let me do that, and then uh, if there's if there's no other topics, we can we can call it early for this week. So um, I put a, a document together, sort of describing the impact of direct RP access on wallets. Like, what did they need to implement, and what would it mean for them, um, both technically, organizationally, and so on. So um, we shared that with a bunch of. Um, folks uh, got feedback and then also gave it to some of the wallets. We've had one uh, direct conversation with the wallet who reviewed it and we talked to them about what it would take. Um, their feedback was really positive. So they see this as just another API like any other API that they would expose. Um, in their view, uh, the regulatory or compliance challenges are surmountable and basically what they need to do is understand like what are the use cases for the API? What would people actually use the direct RP API for? Because that's what they need to present to their regulator um, to explain why they're providing API access to their accounts. So bearing in mind the, these are now um, digital wallets that are they're not licensed banks but they are licensed um, payments companies uh, and so they have um, the way it was explained to us by this wallet in particular was that um, things differ depending on as well whether you're talking about transacting in fiat currency versus crypto so in interledger that would mean you know what's your settlement currency underlying settlement currency for the for the api so if I'm sending and receiving ILP packets to my wallet and they're denominated, let's say in XRP, that's a lot easier than if I wanted them to, for example, be denominated in dollars. Um, and the reason being that there's already a lot of existing uh, legislation that covers APIs for fiat currencies. Their expectation is that the tool like reach parity relatively soon, but at least for now, um, if we limited it, direct RP access to only being crypto, that might make things simpler. Um, which is not a big deal, right? If, if um, ultimately your, uh, you, your use case is fiat, you can still do a conversion. Um, and I think both the, all the wallets we know of would do that anyway. So that's, that's kind of where we stand. Yeah, Kincaid. Like as a merchant, I, you know, if, if I'm doing a charge to, like, I guess it depends upon uh, the user's account, but 
like I'm probably making a charge in fiat. Um, yeah. So if that account yeah. is nominated in something else that like it, it'd be yeah, really that, that, yeah. that use case definitely gets more challenging. Um, uh, like that's one of the, that's one of the other challenges we're going to have to overcome is sort of um, thinking about the conversions and like exactly that use case you're describing. Like if a merchant is pushing money from a user's account to pay, let's say an, an invoice, uh, what, what is the mandate denominated in? What currency is it denominated in and how does that work? Um, sorry, I'll, our power just cycled between backup and regular. I think I'm still online. Yes, I am. <laughs> but I lost my screen. Um, so yeah, I, I agree. That's it. It does make some use cases a bit more tricky. Um, but that was just the feedback that we got. I, I think their goal, as they, as I said, their their goal is to always err on the side of doing everything they would need to do for fiat anyway, because their expectation is, you know, if they try and take shortcuts because they're using crypto, um, the legislation will catch up and then they'll be forced to change anyway, or they'll actually be in trouble and not be able to change and have to shut down whatever services that they're offering. So I think um, you know, that was that's a piece of feedback, but I agree. I think the chances are um, you know you would want you you would want at least for the merchant use case to have the accounts denominated in in some fiat currency. Okay. Um, last bit of news I can share with you. I have a meeting tomorrow with Brianna um, from the Interledger Foundation and Avenda who is potentially going to help us with a revamp of the interledger.org website. Um, so that could be coming down the road. Um, as I mentioned before, I've done a bit of like information architecture around that. Um, so we've got some basic ideas about the direction that'll take now, just speaking to a bunch of vendors who can help with the design and the build. Um, the goal will be to have interledger.org be the official site of the foundation, but to have a whole section of the website that's completely community driven. Um, in the same way that the website is today. So, you know, if people want to contribute tutorials, want to contribute code, um, you know, we'll, we'll still do a lot of that as we do today. And obviously there'll be the RFCs and, and those will still be maintained um, by GitHub in the same way they are today. We might clean up that process a little bit, um, but the, it'll be roughly the same. Okay. Uh, and if there's no other business, we can call it at half an hour instead of a full hour and everyone can get a half hour back. Okay. Um, I'm looking forward to getting some direct RP access and then uh, we can all start playing with our personal connectors again. And I'm sure things will start getting a lot more interesting on the, <laughs> on the community side of things. Um, but until then, uh, next call's in two weeks. So that puts us at the 16th of September. Um, I suspect there's a bit of time zone funniness happening with daylight savings and things over the next little while. So just be aware this call's always um, pegged on UTC. So it's always 4 p.m. UTC, whatever that means for you, wherever you are. And with that, we'll call it a day. Thanks very much, everyone. 
Uh, and thanks again, Sabine, for always getting the recordings up for us. I'll send you this one as soon as it's ready. Ciao.